I should say I don't normally read my lectures, but for this occasion, it seemed to me a more formal presentation of the paper was in order. Also, as Dr. Muller said, uh, I do have a book coming out called The Problem of the Old Testament, and this lecture is taken from that book. It will be out later this year, and you'll want to buy a copy for yourself, for your <laughs> friends, for your family, for your church members, and for everybody you know on Facebook. <laughs> Elijah at Sinai. One, introduction. Recent discussions in biblical interpretation have focused on intertextuality, interbiblical exegesis, and similar concepts. Also, traditional Christian interpretation has long employed the idea of typology, claiming that persons, objects, or incidents in an Old Testament narrative foreshadow Christ. However, both the current academic and the traditional Christian analyses are beset with difficulties. The definition of terms, especially intertextuality and type, and the rules that govern them are vague and disputed. For this reason, I avoid these terms. Instead, I want to demonstrate that one particular phenomenon appears repeatedly in biblical narrative. I will call this the elusive pattern. That's elusive as in to allude to a text. I will develop this concept by examining 1 Kings 19, the account of Elijah at Sinai. It may be helpful if I distinguish an illusion from the traditional type. One of the most famous examples is the claim that Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph was rejected by his own brothers and Jesus was rejected by his own people. Joseph went down into a dungeon and came up to be Pharaoh's vizier and Jesus went down into the grave and rose to the right hand of God. Joseph saved his people from death by famine, and Jesus saved his people from eternal death. Some Christians are strongly drawn to this kind of interpretation, but others assert that it is forced and lacks credibility. Here, we will compare the allusions related to 1 Kings 19 to the standard Joseph typology. Two, a walk through the narrative. 1 Kings 19 is to many readers an enigmatic text. It comes on the heels of Elijah's greatest victories. Elijah had called down fire from heaven and had slaughtered the priests of Baal. At his word, a drought ended and heavy rains came. But then suddenly, upon hearing about the anger of a malevolent queen, he seemed unmanned panicked and suicidal. 1 Kings 19, 1-4. And then Ahab told Jezebel about all that Elijah had done, including everything about how he had killed all the prophets by the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, May the gods do the same to me, and may they do even worse, if by this time tomorrow I have not made your life as the life of one of them. And Elijah saw how things stood, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba of Judah. And he left his servant there, but he went on about a day's journey into the wilderness. And he asked that he might die. He said, Now things have gone on long enough, Yahweh. 
take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. English translations render the beginning of verse 3 as, and Elijah was afraid. This translation is possible, but the standard Hebrew text says that Elijah saw, not that he was afraid. This implies that he observed how the situation was and concluded that things had become hopeless. It is not that he had no fear. He ran for his life. But that his complaint is that the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets. He believed Israel was incorrigible. Jezebel's threats carried force because the people were more in accord with her than with him. He could not call down enough fire to turn them from their path. 1 Kings 19, 5 to 8. Then he lay down and slept under a certain broom tree. And then there was this. An angel was tapping him. He said to him, get up and eat. And he looked and right there near his headrest was a disc of bread, the kind made on hot stones, and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel returned for a second time and tapped him and said, Get up and eat, for the trek is too great for you. And he got up and ate and drank, and he went for forty days and forty nights in the strength of that food, to the mountain of God, to Horeb. Elijah made up his mind to go to Mount Sinai, here called Horeb. But he set out impulsively without adequate provision, and an angel came to give him necessary sustenance for the journey. Certain allusions enhance the meaning of this text. Verse 6 mentions his headrest. In Hebrew, Thawa. This alludes to Jacob's visions of the stairway into heaven at Bethel. Genesis states that Jacob, during the night, used a stone as his headrest. Same Hebrew word, Thawa. In the morning, he used this stone as a makeshift altar, Genesis 28, 11, and 18. But the headrest has seemingly no purpose in the Elijah narrative. It does not reappear in the story. And the text could have stated that the bread was near him, not near his headrest. It looks as though the narrator went out of his way to speak of the headrest to point the reader to the Jacob narrative. This implies that Elijah was in some respects like Jacob. He fled for his life from a would-be killer, journeyed alone into the wild, and had a divine encounter while sleeping all things that Jacob had done. Elijah, like Jacob, was a man chosen by God. This elusive pattern, marked by the expression, his headrest, and involving a fugitive fleeing into the wild from someone who wants to kill him, is not exhausted here. It appears also in 1 Samuel 19, when David, another man chosen by God, fled from Saul into the wilderness. Michael put an idol in David's bed and put goat's hair over his headrest, again, Thawa, to make it appear that David was in bed. 
But the illusion is ironic. Jacob, in his flight from Esau, had a heavenly visitation. But David, in his flight, was saved by an idol that was doubly fraudulent. It was no heavenly being, and it was dressed up to look like the fugitive himself. But this is a true allusion to Jacob's flight from Esau. Michael used goat's hair to deceive her father Saul, just as Rebekah used goat's hair to deceive Jacob's father Isaac in Genesis 27. The allusion implies that David, although God's chosen man, is entering a period of his life characterized by flight and deception, in that too, he was similar to Jacob. Finally, there is another allusion to this narrative pattern in the use of his headrest at 1 Samuel 26. Here too, David is fleeing from his would-be killer, Saul, but the pattern is suddenly reversed. The hunter becomes the hunted. David had the opportunity to kill the sleeping Saul with a spear that was beside his headrest. Again, Barashal Thawah. But David refused to strike him. He would not be like Esau or Jezebel determined to kill the man God had chosen. David's decision legitimized his position as the new chosen king. We thus see an elusive pattern that is both consistent and varied. In every case with his headrest, a man chosen by God is in flight from a would-be killer. Twice it involves a heavenly visitation, and once it is a false heavenly being. But in 1 Kings 19, the illusion marked by his headrest is not sustained through the narrative. It does not dominate the interpretation. It is a genuine illusion, but it is not prominent. The more profound illusion in 1 Kings 19 is the experience of Moses at Sinai. The story develops the Moses-Elijah parallel in detail, and it leads to the heart of the text to Elijah's encounter with Yahweh on the mountain. First Kings 19, 9-4. And he came to the cave, and he spent the night there, and then the word of Yahweh came to him. He said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been genuinely zealous for Yahweh, God Sabaoth, even though the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone remain, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. Indeed, Yahweh is about to pass by. Then there was a great and mighty wind, tearing at the mountains and shattering the rocks before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire came a quiet voice, and it happened that as soon as Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice spoke to him. It said, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been extremely zealous for Yahweh God Sabaoth, even though the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone remain. And they are seeking my life to take it away. Two episodes in Exodus are the background to this passage. First, there's the account of the terrors of Sinai. Exodus 19 describes the mountain as wrapped in thick smoke, blazing with fire, ringed in storm, and resounding with trumpet-like blasts. Deuteronomy 5 says the people were terrified by the voice of God speaking from the fire at Sinai. They wanted Moses to serve as an intercessor between themselves and God. Second, there is the episode of the golden calf and its aftermath, Exodus 32 to 34. The making of the calf is the paradigm event of Israel's apostasy. Throughout Israel's history and until the Babylonian exile, idolatry was the besetting sin of the nation. In Exodus 32, Yahweh declared his intention to destroy Israel and to make a new nation from Moses' descendants. But Moses, by his intercession, dissuaded God. After that, Yahweh declared that because of Israel's stubbornly evil ways, he would not go with them to Canaan. He would only send his angel. But again, Moses persuaded Yahweh to relent. At that moment, Moses asked for a revelation of God's glory. This was not spiritual hubris. Rather, a weary and discouraged Moses sought the vision as reassurance for himself. A similar vision had encouraged Israel during the manna episode. What Moses received in return for his request, however, went far beyond any previous encounter with God. He experienced all the goodness of Yahweh. Hidden in the cleft of the rock, Moses heard Yahweh pass by with the proclamation, Yahweh, Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, patient and possessing abundant mercy and faithfulness, maintaining mercy to thousands and forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin, but he will not grant blanket amnesty. He brings the sins of the fathers down upon sons and grandsons to the third and fourth generations. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. After that, Yahweh reaffirmed his covenant with Israel, Exodus 34, 10 to 28. And Moses re returned to the camp, his face glowing with divine grace to give the people the good news that Yahweh would not abandon them, Exodus 34, 29 to 35. The Elijah narrative uses specific parallels to Exodus to bring out the meaning of Elijah's complaint, of Elijah's complaint and Yahweh's response. Both passages speak of a great prophet standing before God to speak about a sinful people. Specific links between the two are as follows. One, Elijah is sustained in his journey by bread from God, analogous to the manna that sustained Israel. Two, the 40-day length of his solitary journey is analogous to 40-day periods in Exodus, 
periods in which Moses was alone at Sinai, Exodus 24.18 and 34.28. Three, Elijah lodged in the cave on Mount Sinai. As the definite article attests, this is a specific cave. It recalls the cleft in the rocky face of Sinai where Yahweh passed before Moses. The implication is that Elijah is in the very crevice that Moses used. Four, Yahweh twice asked Elijah why he was there, and Elijah twice gave the same answer. The parallel is in how Moses twice interceded with Yahweh not to abandon Israel, and Yahweh twice gave the same answer that he would remain with them. Exodus 33, 12 to 14, and 15 and 16. Five, in both dialogues, the issue is Israel's attachment to idolatry. For Moses, it was the golden calf. For Elijah, it was the cult of Baal. Six, in content, however, Elijah's pleas are effectively the opposite of Moses. In the first episode, Moses called upon Yahweh to be merciful. In the latter episode, Elijah acted as a prosecutor. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Seven, the wind, the fire, and the earthquake that Elijah experienced recall the fire, lightning, and loud blasts at Sinai as described in Exodus 19. This was a revelation of the wrath of God. Eight, the quiet voice recalls the revelation of the divine goodness at Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God. As Moses learned that the real experience of Yahweh's glory was not in a spectacular display of power, but in the verbal revelation of God's mercy, so Elijah learned that God was not really in the terrible signs of punishment, the wind, the fire, the earthquake, but in the quiet voice. Nine, Elijah covered his face when he heard the voice of Yahweh. Moses' face was also covered when Yahweh's glory passed by, Exodus 33, 22 and 23. In both cases, Yahweh yielded to the request of the prophet. He gave Moses and Elijah what they wanted. These allusions explain 1 Kings 19, an otherwise enigmatic text. The allusion to the thunder and fury of Sinai explains why Elijah saw the wind, fire, and earthquake, but that Yahweh was not in them. These things accompany the threats of punishment and death inherent in the Sinai covenant, but they are not of Yahweh's essence. As solemnly recounted in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, God is fundamentally compassionate. The parallel even explains why Elijah, Elijah wrapped his face in his mantle as soon as he heard the voice. As Moses could not look upon God's face, but only his back as Yahweh passed by, so also Elijah knew that Yahweh himself was present in the quiet voice 
and he hid his face. In both cases, a great prophet stood before God because of the sinfulness of Israel. But Moses is the paradigm. His intercession demonstrates that for all his frustration and disappointment, the true prophet of God must plead for Yahweh's people and not against them. Elijah, in this regard, failed to live up to the paradigm. The quiet voice and allusion to Exodus 34, 6, and 7 should have told him that his desire for the fire of Sinai was not in accord with God's true nature. Despite his failings, however, Elijah was a true prophet. Therefore, Yahweh yielded to Elijah's complaints just as he had yielded to Moses' intercession. He told Elijah to anoint three men who would bring bloodshed upon Israel, releasing the punishment that Elijah wanted. 1 Kings 19, 15-18 Then Yahweh said to him, Go! In your trek, return to the wilderness of Damascus. When you get there, you must anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you must anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you must anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, as a prophet to succeed you. And this is what will happen. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will preserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bent before Baal, and all those whose, whose mouths have not kissed him. Terrible sorrows are in store for Israel. Hazael of Damascus will be the most ruthless and successful enemy they have yet faced. A usurping king, Jehu, will carry out a slaughter that will begin with the royal house. Elisha the prophet will, with a word, bring bloodshed even upon small children in Israel. God promised to save only 7,000 people because these were the ones who had not gone over to Baal. One would think that Elijah had gotten everything he wanted. Israel was wicked, and Israel would suffer. But the story goes on. 1 Kings 19, 19 and 20. And he went from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. Twelve yoked pairs of oxen were ahead of him. And he was plowing with the twelfth. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak on him. He abandoned the oxen and ran after Elijah. And he said, let me go kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go, return to them. What have I done for you? Elijah's mode of designating Elisha as his successor is surprising. It was not an anointing. He threw his cloak over Elisha. The text also portrays him as ambivalent about the significance of the act. After doing it, he said, what have I done for you? The reader can hardly miss the detachment and lack of enthusiasm on Elijah's part. 
Elijah did not anoint Hazael or Jehu. They were anointed respectively by Elisha and by Elisha's disciple. Did Elijah simply disobey the divine commission? Elijah had complained bitterly against Israel. He had not acted like Moses who sought for grace for his people. In addition, God's answer may be more of a concession to Elijah than a command. It may also be ironic, as if he had said, All right, since you are so keen to see Israel punished, you can have the honor of anointing the men who will kill them. Elijah's failure to anoint Hazael and Jehu and his seeming indifference towards Elisha imply that he regretted his earlier prosecutor. Prosecutorial words. Now, when he had the opportunity to release fury upon Israel, his heart was no longer in it. His behavior should be regarded more as a work of grace in his life than as a work of disobedience. Many thousands of Israelites would die at the hands of these men. The punishment upon Israel would proceed as predicted. But Elijah could not bring himself to authorize them to do the deed. The essential message of the Moses-Elijah parallel in 1 Kings 19 is unambiguous. The prophet of God should intercede for sinners and not seek their destruction. Three, later uses of the Moses and Elijah pattern. These two Sinai accounts, first of Moses and then of Elijah, create an elusive pattern, one that resurfaces at various points within the biblical narrative. In Jonah 4, the prophet goes east of Nineveh and climbs a hill to see whether God will destroy the city, an outcome he fervently desires. This alludes to Exodus 32 to 34. Jonah's hill is analogous to Sinai, the mountain of judgment, and Jonah sits there like a brooding, angry Elijah. Jonah built for himself a booth, Hebrew sukkah. This word, due to its close association with the festival of Sukkoth, recalls the Exodus and the wilderness history. Also, two speeches in Jonah, uh, two speeches closely tie the book of Jonah to Exodus 32 to 34. First, in his decree to the people, the king of Nineveh declared, quote, Who knows, God may turn back and relent and turn back from the fury of his wrath so that we don't die. Jonah 3.9, that's the pagan king of Nineveh. This echoes Moses' prayer at Sinai, quote, Turn back from the fury of your wrath and relent about the disaster for your people, Exodus 32, 12. Second, Jonah quotes almost verbatim Yahweh's declaration, uh, revelation of his goodness. Quote, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, patient and abounding in mercy, one who turns away from bringing disaster, Jonah 4, 2, citing Exodus 34, 6. Both citations have ironic elements. In the first, the pagan king of Nineveh, not the prophet of Yahweh, 
echoes Moses' intercession at Sinai. In the second, Jonah cites the great revelation of God's compassion not to praise him, but as a grievance against him. The Jonah account also alludes to the Elijah story. Like Elijah, Jonah begins his complaint with a demand that Yahweh kill him. It is better for me to die than to live, Jonah 4.3. Both narratives employ the Hebrew word tov, better. In Exodus 19.4, it is, take my life, for I am no better tov than my father's. In Jonah 4.3, it is the claim that it would be better tov for him to die than to live. Jonah's yearning to see Nineveh destroyed has an obvious parallel in Elijah's prosecution of Israel. Therefore, by means of the allusions to Moses and Elijah, the book of Jonah extends the reader's understanding of the compassion of Yahweh and of the role of a prophet. Jonah rejected Moses' model of intercessor and embraced Elijah's model of prosecutor. But Jonah 4 moves even beyond the Elijah narrative. It teaches that Yahweh's compassion is not confined to Israel alone, but extends even to the worst of the nations, to the Assyrians. In the New Testament, the narrative of the transfiguration of Jesus draws upon the Moses-Elijah-Jonah elusive pattern. Some parallels are obvious. One, like the Moses and Elijah narratives, it takes place on a mountain. Two, Moses and Elijah actually appear in the gospel narrative and stand on the mountain with Jesus. Three, Jesus shines with a brilliant white light just as Moses' face was shining at the end of his encounter with Yahweh. Four, Peter suggests that they build booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, just as Jonah had built a booth for himself. Five, Peter is rebuked by God on the mountain, as was Jonah. Six, when Jesus comes down the mountain, he encounters confusion and unbelief among his disciples. This is analogous to the Israelites' confusion and fear. When Moses returned from Yahweh, they were unable to com comprehend his shining face. But what is the significance of Jesus' transfiguration? We might simply answer that Jesus was glorified, and so he was. But the illusions imply that the glory here is something specific. It is the same as the glory that made Moses' face shine. It was like the quiet voice that rebuked Elijah. It is the revelation that God is gracious and compassionate. The servant of Yahweh seeks forgiveness for sinners and not their destruction. Thus the light that shone from Jesus revealed him to be the great intercessor, filled with the same grace that was reflected in Moses' shining face. The fundamental issue in the divine encounters of Moses, Elijah, and Jonah is how the servant of God will respond to sinners. In the immediate aftermath of the transfiguration, the disciples asked, why the scribes taught that Elijah must come first. They wondered how it was that the Messiah was present among them without Elijah. Jesus told them that John the Baptist was the predicted Elijah. He came to call the people to repentance, but, quote, they did to him whatever they wanted, unquote. This it compares to Elijah's complaint in 1 Kings 19, they are seeking my life. 
But even in the face of this hostility, Jesus would not abandon or prosecute them. Instead, he said, the Son of Man is about to suffer in their behalf. Jesus fulfills the ideal of mercy taught in the Moses, Elijah, and Jonah narratives. In this light, too, we must interpret Peter's desire to make booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Peter was not intentionally opposing Jesus' purpose. He was bewildered and did not know what to say, Mark 9, 6. But without knowing it, Peter was proposing that they take on the role of Jonah. They should sit on the mountain in booths, watching the sinners perish below. As such, his words drew a rebuke from heaven. There is another reverberation of 1 Kings 19 in the Gospels. In an enigmatic and somewhat troubling text, Jesus demands that a man follow him without first taking time to bury his father. The father apparently was recently deceased. Luke 9, 59 and 60, he said to another, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But he replied to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But you go, announce the kingdom of God. We have no reason to suppose that this man was trying to evade Jesus' call and that his father was actually alive and well. Jesus' response is intentionally startling, meant to show the urgency of evangelism. But the parallel in 1 Kings 19 is illuminating. We call that Elijah casually dismissed Elisha to say goodbye to his parents, saying, What have I done for you? And yet Jesus would not even allow this would-be disciple to take care of his father's funeral. Why? The explanation is in the difference between the task of Elisha and that of Jesus' emissaries. Elisha with Hazael and Jehu was, one, was to be one of the three agents of death. Jesus' disciples were to be agents of life. Indeed, the dead in Jesus' saying are not just the spiritually dead, Rather, like the prophets before him, Jesus already sees ruin and death all around him, the coming calamity of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. From this perspective, the Jews were already dead or living on borrowed time, and Jesus' task of proclaiming the kingdom was so urgent that it could allow for no delay. Elijah similarly spoke to a people on whom death and destruction had already been decreed, but since his successor was to be an agent of death, Elijah had no desire to press the urgency of Elisha's taking up the task. In short, both Elijah and Jesus chose disciples in the context of Israel's impending destruction. But Elijah's followers would be agents of calamity, while Jesus' followers would make a final offer of salvation. For the former, delay is to be desired. For the latter, it is intolerable. The next would-be follower of Jesus further demonstrates that there is an illusion and allusion to Elijah's call of Elisha. Luke 9, 61, 62. But another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, no one, having put his hand to the plow, looks at things that are and who looks at things that are behind is fit for the kingdom of God. We can readily understand Jesus' plow metaphor. 
No one can plow a straight furrow while looking backwards. The man who seeks the kingdom of God with hesitation, still longing for things left behind, is not fit for it. But plowing a field is not an obvious metaphor for describing the life of a disciple. It suggests that Jesus was linking the man's request to a biblical context. Viewed as a biblical illusion, the man's request is almost identical to that of Elisha. Quote, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you, unquote. And what was Elisha doing when Elijah approached him? He was plowing a field. Jesus speaks to the would-be disciple as if speaking to Elisha standing behind his plow. And he uses the circumstance of plowing to illustrate his point. He tells the man that unlike Elisha, he must forego normal family duties and take up his ministry immediately. Elisha again had a ministry of death, but Jesus' disciples had a ministry of life. I'm almost done. Please be patient with me. Four, analyzing the elusive pattern in narrative. The elusive pattern found in the stories of Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and Jesus contained both positive and negative examples of the ideal of the servant of Yahweh. These texts contain deliberate allusions and develop a single theological theme. This contrasts with the artificial with an artificial typology, of which the use of Joseph as a type of Christ is an example. Features of genuine illusion are as follows. One, a genuine illusion pattern is reasonably obvious, and an author sometimes will give some pointer to assist the readers. Besides the use of the expression, his headrest, both Genesis and Kings involve a flight from a would-be murderer, a trek alone through the wilderness, and a divine encounter with angels. The reference to the headrest serves as a pointer from the latter text to the former text. It calls attention to other more meaningful similarities between this story and Jacob's flight. Similarly, the fact that Jonah explicitly quotes Exodus 34, 6 obviously directs the reader to that text. In the same manner, the presence of Moses and Elijah in the Transfiguration account point to their respective narratives. It demands that the reader ponder the lives of these men and consider what episodes in their lives relate to the Transfiguration. Two, the elusive pattern should develop a theological theme. The pattern here described for Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, uh, in the pattern here described for Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, each episode concerns a prophet speaking with God regarding a wicked people, and each incident reveals God's forbearance and the prophet's true task. The prophet should intercede for the wicked. At the transfiguration, Jesus shows himself willing to endure the violence of wicked people to carry out the prophetic task. Three, an elusive pattern is based on specific sections of the narrative and not a scattering of details from across several narratives. The, illusion described, the illusions described uh, above occur in specific passages. Exodus 32 to 34, 1 Kings 19, Jonah 4, Matthew 17. 
It is not a matter of claiming that various qualities of Elijah have parallels in various qualities of Moses with the parallels drawn from diverse passages in the Pentateuch and 1 Kings. But the parallels between Joseph and Jesus are drawn randomly from all over Genesis 37 to 50 and the Gospels. No specific text develops the illusion. Four, the author arguably should have intended the illusion to prior narratives. We cannot ask the author what his intent was, and so we must make inferences from the text. But it is unlikely that the author of 1 Kings was unaware of all the links between that story and the story of Moses' intercessions. He shaped his narrative to bring out the force of these parallels. He expected his readers to know Exodus 32 to 34 and to reflect upon its significance for Elijah's actions. On the other hand, although one cannot doubt that the evangelist knew about the life of Joseph, it is difficult to find instances where they made intentional allusion to Joseph. Any claim that the evangelist deliberately shaped the gospel narrative to echo the career of Joseph is implausible. Five, not every illusion is of equal importance. The illusion in 1 Kings 19 to Jacob's flight with the catchword his headrest is brief and does not dominate the text. By contrast, the comparison of Elijah at Sinai to Moses' experience is maintained from beginning to end. Both illusions are genuine, but they are not of equal importance. Six, a genuine illusion should serve as a guide to the interpretation of a text to the degree that is sustained, that it is sustained throughout the passage. Illusions are not just there to demonstrate the cleverness of authors. If the illusion is real, it, it elucidates the passage in which it occurs. As already described, some illusions are brief and the amount of light they shed upon a text is correspondingly slight. One could miss the allusion to Jacob's slide in 1 Kings 19 and still fundamentally interpret the passage rightly. But in the case of the comparison between Moses and Elijah, the, the allusion is the whole point. If one does not understand this parallel, one does not understand Elijah at Sinai at all. Our interpretation of Jonah 4 or of the transfiguration are similarly inadequate if we do not see how these stories refer to their antecedents. A narrative illusion is a tool an author uses to guide the reader. By contrast, one could read through all four Gospels without ever noticing a parallel to the life of Joseph and yet miss nothing of what the evangelist intended. Seven. Narrative allusion is significant for the interpretation of the latter text, not the prior text. Exodus 32 to 34 illuminates the meaning of 1 Kings 19, but the reverse is not the case. Looking back to the Moses and Elijah stories clarifies the significance of Jonah 4, but one does not interpret 1 Kings 19 by reading Jonah 4. Thus, the latter narrative is hermeneutically dependent on the prior narrative. Hermeneutical dependence where it is impossible to understand the latter text if one misses the connection to the former. By contrast, all the alleged parallels between Joseph and Jesus are achieved by interpreting the life of Joseph, Joseph 
through the lens of the life of Jesus. That is, the former, Joseph, is hermeneutically dependent on the latter, Jesus. Eight, an elusive pattern does not require or imply structural parallelism between the prior and latter narrative. Illusion situates an earlier motif in a new context, reconfiguring the message of the earlier text. It does not repeat the earlier text. The latter narrative is not an exposition of the prior narrative. It is not so-called inner biblical exegesis. The use of the illusion does not imply that the prior narrative governs all the events in the latter narrative. The Elijah text is not a copy of the Moses text, and the Jonah text is not a copy of either the Elijah or Moses text. Allusion may include parallels, but it is not parallelism. Nine, an elusive pattern deals with a theme of biblical theology. Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and Jesus all interact with the ideal of a prophet interceding for sinners. This ideal recurs repeatedly in the Bible. Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant of Yahweh. A major issue in Jeremiah is his transition away from interceding for Israel. He first prays for them, but then God commands him to stop doing this. By upending the normal role of a prophet, the account indicates that Jeremiah's Jerusalem was incurably evil and that in such a circumstance, the norm established by Moses did not apply. Paul states in Galatians 1:14 and 17 that while persecuting the church, he was, quote, extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, unquote, but that after his Damascus Road vision, he set out for Arabia, where Mount Sinai was located, Galatians 4:25. His claim to have been extremely zealous recalls Elijah's complaint, I have been extremely zealous for Yahweh, 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah was distressed that he was being persecuted by Israelites and sought to voice his complaint to God. But the newly baptized Paul was distressed that he had persecuted the church and he sought for God's direction. Paul's subsequent life demonstrates that he came away convinced that he must endure suffering so that sinners might be saved. In that, he followed Moses and especially Jesus. Paul's boast, therefore, was not that he received revelations from God, but that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Ten, genuine, allus genuine narrative illusion looks back to prior texts and not forward to future texts. The narrative of Moses on Sinai does not predict the episode of Elijah at Sinai. Narrative is not prophecy. 11. However, there can be multiple instances of an elusive pattern, often leading to its final climactic fulfillment. The ideal of the prophet as an intercessor for sinner was manifested in Moses and given a negative example in Elijah and Jonah. The great and final fulfillment was in Jesus. Narrative is not prophecy, but a later narrative can fulfill an ideal found in earlier narratives. Five, conclusion. When the account of the transfiguration of Jesus alludes to the complex of stories involving Moses, Elijah, and Jonah, it does not saddle those passages with alien ideals, 
but taps into an already existing elusive pattern. And the illusions are not casual literary parallels, curiosities, but of no real significance. The illusions imply that Jesus is bringing the theological ideal of the Old Testament prophet to its culmination. The gospel narrative completes what the Old Testament had begun. Jesus is the final manifestation of the ideal of a prophet. The New Testament narrative is coherent with the Old, and it carries the Old Testament text to their final denouement. Six epilogue. What about Joseph? Do we then throw poor Joseph under the bus? No. But we must understand the true significance of any parallels between him and Jesus. Joseph was a righteous man. Jesus is the paradigm of all righteousness. When believers are ostracized, imprisoned, or murdered for the sake of the gospel, they are not types of Christ, but they are Christ-like. When someone perseveres in faith, behaves with integrity, and strives for the good of sinners, that person is living up to the ideal of the image of God, and the perfect image of God is Jesus. If we honor Joseph for being Christ-like, it is sufficient. Thank you. <laughs>